As you make your way back, please find two passages. One in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. We're in Mark chapter 12 this morning. And if you can put your finger in another spot or a bookmark, we're going to look at Isaiah 5 in just a little while. Some verses from Isaiah 5. And then our main section is Mark 12 this morning. By way of review, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Mark. Some of you, this is your first time here in a service where we've been studying Mark. So I wanted to give you a a quick review. We're in the section that is commonly called the Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, later that week. And we began many weeks ago now with Sunday. We often call that the triumphal entry when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. That's in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And then Monday, we have the account of Jesus cursing the fig tree and then condemning the temple. That's verses 12 to 14 and then 15 to 19 there in chapter 11. And then we got to Tuesday, and Jesus used the fig tree that by then had withered to teach a lesson to his disciples. What was the lesson about? The lesson was about prayer and about forgiveness. So we spent some time studying that. And then last time was still on Tuesday, continuing the same day, the Sanhedrin, the elders, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees came together to question Jesus' authority. Where do you get your authority to do these things? And as you may remember, Jesus said, okay, I'll ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And he asked them about John the Baptist. Whose authority did he have? And they said, well, we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole. And he said, well, neither will I answer your question. They were there to question his authority. And even though we have a chapter division in our Bibles, this just continues the same day, maybe minutes apart, maybe hours, but the same day, still on Tuesday. This is the parable of the wicked vine dressers. That's one way to describe it. One of my study Bibles described it as the parable of the rejected son which is a really good way to describe it. But that is the section that we're in this morning. Jesus used this parable to expand on the theme of what he began teaching with the fig tree and the lesson from the fig tree. So this is an expansion of the same lesson, the same theme that we've talked about before. Hopefully you had a chance to find Mark 12. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to read for us Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully treated. And again he sent another. And him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold of him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, as we approach this section of your word this morning, we pray that you would help us. Help us to listen. Help us to listen with the intent to obey what you show us. Lord, we ask that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts today, that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in our hearts. We believe that your word is alive and powerful, that it is sharp, that it pierces into the innermost parts of us. And as a skillful, skillful surgeon, Lord, we ask that you would do that in our hearts today. Father, I ask for your help that I would teach your word accurately and clearly that exactly what you want to be shared from this passage is what would come out today and that we would respond, that we would be doers of the word today and not just hearers. Use your word in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, thank you. Trying to figure out how to synthesize this, how to summarize it, simplify it as best I can for you. And here's the key word that I believe sums up this section, these 12 verses. The word is rejection. Rejection. What we see in this passage is the rejection of the son. And then in the second brief story from Psalm, we have the rejection of the stone. So that is the main idea, and I, I would put it in a sentence this way. The religious leaders rejected Jesus. That's what we're reading here. It's continuation over the last time, right? That Jesus has all authority. And what are they doing? They're rejecting him. They're rejecting his authority. They don't believe that he's from heaven. They don't believe he's from God. And frankly, what's bothering the most is that he's in direct competition with them. He is threatening, by cleansing the temple, he's threatening their livelihood, their money-making machine. And he's threatening their authority. Rome was letting them be the religious leaders, in some ways the civil leaders of Jerusalem, certainly of the temple area, and they feel threatened because someone who has real authority has come and has been teaching and has been working miracles. And they don't like that. They're jealous of him. And as we'll see again today, they're plotting how to destroy him. Now, my goal when I teach the Bible is to tell you what it says, what it means, how it applies. Those are the three things I'm attempting to do anytime I get up in front of you. And we're going to do that today, but I'm going to do it a little differently from what I normally do. The first nine verses here are one parable. And I'm actually going to go through it three times. It's not going to be three times as long as normal, I don't think. But we're going to go through it three times. We're going to talk about what this story means just as it's told. What was the culture? What was the context? And then how did the original hearers interpret it? What did it mean to them? And then what does it mean to us? That is my goal for this morning. 
The first verse there, that's where we're going back to, verse 1 of chapter 12. There it says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. I mentioned a moment ago, the chapter breaks aren't inspired. They're relatively recent. They're the last few hundred years that we got chapter and, and then verse divisions after that. So the story just rolls on. It's probably one of the less fortunate chapter breaks. And we're continuing the story from last time. So where it says them, then he began to speak to them in parables. It's good for us to know who them is. In this case, it's the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. How do you know that? Look back at verse 27 of the previous chapter. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. That's the group we're talking about. Together, if the entire group were there, it would be 70, 71 people, and that's the Supreme Court of Israel. It's the Sanhedrin. We'll talk more about them in the weeks to come. And he is speaking to them, it says, in parables. That's interesting to me. I don't know whether it's important, but it's interesting because he says parables plural, and here we have only one parable. If you want to count the stone, I guess you could have two. But if you want to know the other parables that he said at this time, you would have to look at the cross-reference that's over in Matthew chapter 21, 28 through 22, 14. He begins to tell a story because that's what a parable is. It's, it's a, I always learned it's an earthly story with a heavenly meeting. That's how I grew up hearing it. Another definition I saw this week was story illustrations that use something familiar to help us understand something new. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So when he says vineyard, that would have been very common in that area. Israel, even today, from what I understand, still has a lot of vineyards. It was commonly referred to as the backbone of the economy, that they had vineyards, they had grapes, they had juice, they had wine. So he plants a vineyard. Around the vineyard, he put a a hedge, or you could say a fence. What's the purpose? To keep out wild animals and to keep out intruders. He dug a pit or a wine vat. And don't imagine that he's just getting his little garden shovel out and digging. A wine vat had to be out of stone. So think more like pickaxe. It would have been hard work. Make the wine vat so that someone can trample the grapes in an upper area, and then it would drain down into a lower area. That's what the wine vat refers to. He also built a tower. From what I understand, these would have been 15 to 20 feet high. They provided shelter. They provided a place for storage, maybe like a, a shed. But in addition to that, because it was up higher, it was up high enough that one person from up on that platform could see the entire vineyard and could basically defend it with a slingshot or something similar. That's the idea. So what we have in this first verse, the things that he's doing, we're reading that this landlord, this landowner is making all sorts of preparations. The same if you all have ever had a vegetable or a, a flower garden, you put some work in to get things started. That's what he's doing. He's making all the preparation, all the provision that is needed. He's, he's going to great expense in terms of time and money and effort. And what is his expectation? That he's going to get a harvest. And in his case, because he is going to be an absentee landlord, he's expecting to receive part of the proceeds back. He's expecting to receive some rent. And to do that, he then needs to hire some vine dressers, or your translation may say tenant farmers. That's the idea. Someone's going to lease this property, going to tend the vineyard, and then 
I am going to receive part of the proceeds of the harvest back from the tenant as payment. That's the idea. So he hires someone he thinks is going to be reliable. Somebody's going to take care of the vineyard. Somebody's going to give the money back that is expected. That part of the profit. At this period in time, the owner usually received back one-third all the way up to one-half of the produce, of the, the profit. So he's expecting a return on his investment. That's the expectation. He expects to get some of the produce or some of the money back. And then it says, very succinctly, he went into a far country. Literally, he went on a journey. The parallel passage in Luke 20 tells us he went for a long time. He wasn't visiting often. He definitely wasn't there breathing down their neck, telling them how to do it. He hired people he trusted, and he left. Verse 2. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Vintage time, the season, can be translated harvest time. That may be what your translation says. Literally, it means at the right time. And obviously, if he knows enough to have planted the vineyard, prepared the vineyard, then he knows when to expect the fruit. From what I understand, it's normally a multi-year process, probably year four, year five is the most likely. That's when it is the right time, when he starts to expect that there's going to be a harvest of grapes, raisins, juice, wine, etc., So probably in that fifth year, he sent a servant that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. He is a representative, an ambassador of the landowner. And he came to get the landlord's share. And how did they treat him? They beat him. And the words there imply that he was beaten severely. And they sent him away empty handed. Now, have you ever read this in Matthew or here or in Luke and wondered, what is this? Why would they do this? Why would they be thinking what they're thinking? Well, as I studied this week, I learned that in order to retain his legal rights to the property, this is reading from Warren Wearsby's commentary, the owner had to receive produce from the tenants. To execute the agreement they had, there has to be a handoff from the tenants to the landowner. This explains why the tenants refused to give him anything. They wanted to claim the vineyard for themselves. It also explains why the owner continued to send agents to them. It was a question of authority and ownership. Do you begin to see how this fits into the previous section? By what authority do you do these things? That's where we are. Verse 4. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. There's an escalation of mistreatment going on here. It's going from bad to worse. Now think for a moment, if you had been the landowner, how would you have handled this? Let's put it in modern, modern terminology. You have a rental property, and you rent it out to somebody, and you expect that person to pay you rent. If that person does not pay you rent, in our time and place, our culture, our society, our legal rights, you're probably going to 
press charges, you're going to evict that person. Now imagine if you sent someone who worked for you, let's say you have a, a real estate company, and you send somebody as your representative to go collect the rent, and that person is abused, is beaten. What are you going to do then? You're probably going to press charges for assault and so on. This is going to escalate in the same way that they're escalating it. And at some point, you are going to be done with it. You're, you're going to do within your power what you can to remedy the situation. Is that what this landowner does? That was a yes or no question. Is that what the landowner does? No. Not right away is a good answer. At this point, what I see is a very, very patient landowner. They're beating some. They're killing some. Verse 6. This is a surprise to me. If you, just imagine, if you're reading it the first time, this would surprise me. This would shock me. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. When it says still having one son, I wonder if perhaps he didn't have more servants to send. I don't know. It doesn't say. I don't think there's theological meaning in that, but that's my own curiosity. And it says last. So this is the last resort. This is the highest appeal. He's expecting results from this. Why? Because his son is his own representative. Is coming even more so than the servants, coming in the same authority as the father. So he's expecting a different result. Or so it seems. Verse 7, But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Again, reading this, how does that make any sense? Well, once you understand the rules of their culture, it makes a lot more sense. Because they may have believed because the son is coming, the father may be dead. Why else would he send his son? So if the father is dead and the son is here, and we kill him, guess what the law allowed for? If there was no one who could show clear claim, no deed of the land, if there's no other inheritor, then now we have a squatter's right situation. They're there, they have the land, they've been tending the land, it's theirs. They can claim it. So it's not illogical. It's unethical. It's wrong. But it's not illogical what they're thinking and what they're trying to do here. Verse 9, here's Jesus' summary of the parable. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Mark presents it as a rhetorical question. There's not an answer here, but Jesus answers it. And if you read Matthew, it seems like they came up with the same answer, and now he's repeating it back to them. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And I suppose in a sense we cheer and think, yeah, that's what should have happened. Because what they've done, they haven't just rejected the owner's son, they've rejected the owner. And what does he say? Get rid of them? I am starting over with a new group. So that's the story. I wanted to fill in some of those details because sometimes if we just try to jump to, oh, it's a parable, I know I'm going to interpret this, I know this is this, that's good for us to do. We're about to do that. But we kind of need to know the background of the story. What would it have meant to the people who were hearing it first? 
So let's go back to verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine bat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Who's the man? God the Father. What is the vineyard? The vineyard is the nation of Israel through whom God intended to bless the nations of the world. As we discussed a few weeks ago when we studied the cursed fig tree, God expected fruit from Israel. He expected them to bear fruit. But how do we know this? Well, because this study Bible or this commentary told me, that's how I know this. Well, beyond that, is there anything else in the Bible that would tell us? And that's why I told you to put a bookmark over in Isaiah 5. I'm ready for that now. So if you would look at Isaiah 5, This is called the Song of the Vineyard. I'm going to read verses 1 through at least the beginning of verse 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. There's that word. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So this, this vineyard potentially is going to do really well. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. Is any of this sounding familiar yet? So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? I'm going to stop there for just a minute. So how do we know that Israel is the vineyard? Because when we read the Old Testament, this isn't the only passage, but this is the clearest and best passage for this purpose, for us to know that the vineyard is Israel. And who is he talking to again? Can we refresh our memories? What group is Jesus talking to telling this parable? He's talking to the religious leaders. Do you think they would have known Isaiah 5? They would have known it well. It's probably the first thing that would have popped into their minds as soon as he said, vineyard. And there are lots of parallels that you've already seen as I have read it. Now, the outcome is a little different here from what it is when Jesus told it. We're going to continue in verse 5. And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Here's verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. I like it when Scripture interprets Scripture for me and makes it very clear. The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. So please note that in both stories, the owner made all of the preparations, all of the provisions necessary to receive a harvest. Israel had everything it needed to produce spiritual fruit. So the fault did not lie with the owner of the vineyard, the one who planted the vineyard. It wasn't the gardener's fault that there wasn't fruit. You agree? Does that make sense? So in our story, I'm going back to Mark now, Mark 11, the vine dressers are the Jewish leaders, the people he's talking to, those who are responsible for teaching the people that there would then be spiritual fruit. How do we know that? Because that's Jesus' primary audience. We already looked at Mark 11:27. This is the Sanhedrin, at least part of it, representatives from it. Verse two, 
Now at the vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. All of the servants that we read about here, it's what we would call the Old Testament prophets up to and leading to John the Baptist. So it's the prophets, it's the messengers from God telling his nation, Israel, wake up, turn back, repent, come back to me. I'm expecting you to grow spiritually, for you to be the blessing to the entire world. Come back to me. And how did they treat those servants? They rejected them. Verse 4, again he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. Verse 5, and again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. God is very patient. He is very kind, and he keeps sending additional prophets. But just to name a few from the Old Testament, Isaiah, outside the Bible, this is tradition, but Isaiah was sawn in half. He was executed. He was martyred. Jeremiah, think of him. Nobody listened to him, and they threw him in the dungeon. And he was sinking down in before he was rescued. Zechariah was stoned to death outside the temple near the altar. John the Baptist, getting to the modern time of the Gospels. John the Baptist, how did he die? He lost his head. That wasn't at the hands of the religious leaders. It was Herod and Herod's illegitimate wife. But that's how the prophets had been treated. That was the pattern. That's what Jesus is is pointing out to them. He's declaring to them. And why was this happening now? Because the vine dressers wanted the authority for themselves. They wanted the power for themselves. They weren't going to give any of it up. Because what does it say in verse 6? Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. That idea of vintage time in verse 2, it was at the appropriate time. How, when did I say that was? Probably year 5. But maybe it was year 4. Why would it be important that it be year 4? Leviticus 19 tells us that the fourth year is when everything was dedicated, devoted to the Lord. So if I plant a vineyard, this is under the law, Old Testament. If I plant a vineyard, first year it's not going to produce anything. Second year it's not going to produce anything. Third year it's really not going to produce anything. Fourth year is the first year there's going to be anything there. Guess what? I give all of that to the Lord. It's all devoted. The first fruits are given to him. Fifth year, I get to start enjoying it. I, I, I can... I'm still going to give him an offering, but it's all his in the fourth year. So perhaps the appropriate time at the right time may have been the fourth year. Certainly we know, cross-reference this with Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to redeem those who are under the law. That's what was going on right in front of their eyes. The son has been sent to them. What are they going to do about it? What are they going to do with him? 
So obviously the Son represents Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his one and only Son to receive a portion of the harvest of Israel, or as John the Baptist put it, fruits worthy of repentance. That's what he's looking for. Spiritual fruit that was the result of faith and obedience. And if you have any question, are we we sure we're talking about Jesus? Let's cross-reference this again. Even just in the book of Mark, back in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism, there was a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Same term. Chapter 9, transfiguration. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. There's no question that the son in this parable is the son of God who's standing before them. It's Jesus. So it would be great if these religious leaders would fall to their knees and repent and change their mind. We know that's not what happened. Verse 7, But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. They wanted it all for themselves. And they weren't going to stop until they achieved that. And they believed the best way to do that was to kill the son, kill the heir, and then we'll get it all. And that's what was going on in that time and place. The religious leaders had already been hatching plans, hatching plots. How are we going to get rid of him? How are we going to destroy him? How are we going to kill him? How are we going to lay hands on him? He cannot be allowed to continue. He's working signs and wonders. He's teaching with authority. He didn't get that authority from us, and this has to stop. I think it's kind of cool that in these few verses we have the incarnation and the crucifixion. I've never preached this passage at at Christmas. I probably never will, but I could. Because in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. And what did they do with his son? They crucified him. They killed him. They wanted to get rid of him. Verse 9, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. This describes the destruction of Jerusalem, which was going to happen a few decades later, A.D. 70. The temple would be destroyed. Jerusalem would be destroyed. And that's what he's predicting. And give the vineyard to others. If they weren't upset yet, that little phrase would have put them over the edge because this is fulfilled in the establishment of the church. We are sitting here today, primarily Gentiles, but Jews and Gentiles, the wall of partition broken down according to Ephesians. It's something new. He has given his vineyard to others in a sense. He's expecting spiritual fruit now from us, the church. Now, does that mean he's not going to do anything else for Israel? No, it doesn't. Keep reading the rest of the New Testament. There's going to be a time when the the nation of Israel will come back to him. Many will turn, many will believe on him as their Messiah, but that's not yet. At this point that we're reading in Mark, they are and have been rejecting him. Now Jesus changes the metaphor. Now we're going to go past verse 9 this time. Jesus changed the metaphor from a vineyard to a building in order to make application and drive this point home to the religious leaders. So verse 10 says, Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
anytime you read Jesus starting off with, have you not read? Number one, know that that was common at that time. That's the way they talked to one another. And know, number two, that that was an insult to them. Do you think they had read it? They had it memorized. They prided themselves in their knowledge of the scriptures. They absolutely had, they knew it inside and out, forward and backward. What's more, he's quoting from Psalm 118. What time of year is it? Passover. This is one of the Psalms that the pilgrims who were visiting had chanted to each other. As a matter of fact, if we backed up two days to Sunday, guess what Psalm they were chanting as he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Same Psalm, later verse. And he's quoting to them, this was known as a messianic Psalm. This is a prophetic Psalm. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you ever read that, guys? Yes, they had read it. Yes, they knew it. But in spite of knowing it, they had missed the heart of God found in his word. They studied hard, but they'd missed it. They'd missed the point. They'd missed seeing the God of his word. And now they were missing his son, who was standing right in front of them. So now in this second version, we have the stone. And, and Jesus is quoting from a messianic psalm, so they understood that this is talking about the Messiah. The builders who are rejecting that stone are the leaders of Israel. And rejected, it's the same idea of persecuting the prophets. Now, how does this apply today? I was trying to figure out some way to have this make sense to us. Because the cornerstone was chosen very selected, very carefully. They selected it very carefully. And in that time and place, they didn't have some of the technology that we have. If you wanted something that was absolutely plumb, absolutely level today, what would you do? What would you use? Some of you are craftsmen. You like to do stuff around the house. What would you use? A plumb line? A level? How about a laser level? I found this image. That looks pretty cool to me. That would be fun. And it's going to make everything level. They didn't have that back then. They didn't have anything quite like that. But what they did was search high and low until they found a stone that was straight, square, plumb. This is going to be the cornerstone. This is going to be the way we figure out the direction of this wall and that wall and how we go up. It's got to be right or the whole building's going to be off. So they selected it very carefully. And what this psalm was basing that on is the one that was supposed to be the perfect stone they went through one after another, and they rejected this one. But this one that was rejected has become the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone of something new. And what's the something new? We just said it. The church. And isn't that what Jesus is to us? That There are illustrations throughout the rest of the New Testament. Paul referenced this. Peter referenced this. That he is the cornerstone. He was rejected, but he has become our level our plumb line he is the one we are supposed to become like we're supposed to become more and more in his image by his grace with his help so he is our standard and when it says this is the lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes if it had been up to you or me would the son have come and been killed and rise again so that now we have a living savior who by whose Resurrection, we're justified. We wouldn't have thought through that. We wouldn't have done it that way. 
but the one who is rejected, it's marvelous. It's something that only God could have done. So in this second mini parable, we have the stone, that's Jesus the Messiah, the builders who are the religious leaders. We have the fact that they rejected him in, in the case of Jesus the son, this rejected stone, he was not only persecuted, he was killed, but he has become the chief cornerstone, the head of the church. Verse 12, after they've rejected the son, they've rejected the stone, we have verse 12. And they, the religious leaders, sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is that other kind of lay hands on. They wanted to wring his neck. They wanted to get a hold of him. This is not new in the book of Mark. Mark 3, 6. He had healed on the Sabbath, and they sought how they might destroy him. Mark eleven eighteen. After he had condemned the temple, they sought how they might destroy him. John eleven fifty three. After he had raised Lazarus from the dead, they plotted to put him to death. Why didn't they do it right now? Because they feared the multitude. This is the second time we've seen this about this group. They were fearing man. Unfortunately, they were not fearing God. They were afraid of public opinion going against them. So they left him. They went away. As we read Mark and the other Gospels, part of the reason Jesus was telling stories in parables was to make it obvious to the people who understood it and mysterious to the people who didn't. So it's surprising to read that this, this one they got. They got this one. They knew this parable was about them. And that offended them, and they wanted to destroy him, but they didn't know what else to do, so they left him and went away. Now, briefly, and I will be brief, I want to go back through it one more time, the first nine verses, and just hit a couple of things that I believe apply to us. Because we're not standing in the temple. In that sense of priests, we are not the religious leaders of Israel. Okay, We are believer priests, according to the New Testament, but not the way they were. We're not seeking to destroy Jesus. I certainly hope not. So what do I do with this? Back in verse 1, he starts out the parable. What do I want us to understand from that? God expects a harvest. He expects a return. He expects us to bear fruit. Luke 12, 48 says, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. God expects a return. One of my commentators said, every Christian is in view. If we've been Christians for any length of time, it is inexcusable to lack any of the fruits of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22. There is no excuse for being dominated by temper, jealousy, lust, covetousness, or whatever. There's no excuse for that. He's looking for fruit. Is there spiritual fruit in your life? And I don't mean something you manufacture because you have such good self-control. I mean what only God can do in your life as you submit to him, as you yield to him, as you are spirit-led and spirit-filled and as you walk in the spirit and therefore do not follow the works of the flesh. The next verses, he sends another servant, the one that's wounded in the head, another one who's killed. Do we acknowledge the authority of God in our lives? Do we acknowledge the authority of his word in our lives? He has given us everything we need for spiritual success. Everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. 
And yet at times, some of us live our lives as if we owe him nothing. I'll live my life however I please, thank you very much. You want me to give back some of the time you've given me to live for others and share the gospel? I'm sorry, I'm too important and I don't have enough time for that. He's looking for a return on his investment. He's given you the 24 hours in a day and the seven days a week while he gives you life on this earth. You give any of it back to him? Obviously you are. You wouldn't be sitting here listening to me this morning. Beyond Sunday morning? You want me to give back some of my money? You've entrusted this money to me to give to the church, to missionaries, to other people who are in need? No, I don't think so. I can barely make it as it is. I don't have extra. And we deny his authority. And we have no fruit because we're not submitted to his will. How about this? You expect me to use the talents you've given me to serve your kingdom? What fun is that? I want to live for myself. I want to do what I want to, when I want to, how I want to. And we fail to acknowledge him as Lord. And either because of the way we're living, we have nothing to offer him, or whatever we have to offer him, we are so tight-fisted with it, we're not going to give it up. Because we and they rejected the word of God that came through his servants, the prophets, he sent his only son to die in our place. The problem is, we don't want to give up control. We don't want to acknowledge his claim on our life, our vineyard. Because we want to be God. What did the the vine dressers want? They wanted to own the vineyard themselves. They didn't want to give up any of the profits. And when we refuse to acknowledge him as the Lord he is and give him, what's he asking for? Just as generically, as simply as I can put it, he's asking for one-seventh of our days, one day a week, one-tenth of our possessions. And yet, when we read passages like Romans 12, he's asking for all of it because it's all his. We want, he wants us to acknowledge that we belong to him, every last bit of us. And then he actually asks us, asks us to give back a portion of that. A lot less than all. But we have to acknowledge, we have to get to the place where you can have all of me. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. I will follow. I will submit. Those are some ways that we can fit in this story, find ourselves in this story, and reject the Lord of the vineyard. We read in John 1 a description of what we've just studied this morning. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And thankfully, it doesn't stop there. But as many as receive him... To them, he gives the power to be called the children of God. Even to those who what? Believe on his name. We have all rejected him at some point. Some of us, by God's grace, have come to the point that we believe on him and we become his children. 
And if there's anyone here, anyone online this morning, you've never done that, let today be your day. Call on him and find salvation in him. Because he loved us so much that he sent his only son so that those who believe in him would not perish, would not die, would not be destroyed, but that we would have everlasting, eternal, unending life. Believers, do you acknowledge Jesus' authority in your life today? And I don't mean just lip service, check the box in your mind right now. I mean, does your life bear that out? Maybe it does. If so, praise the Lord. But if there's something that you know you're holding back, you're saying, buzz off. Leave my vineyard alone. Then you need to confess that this morning. And you need to come back to him and say, God, I'm sorry. I know you've been asking for this part of my life and I've said no and I've said no and I've ignored your word and I've ignored your message. Today I'm going to surrender. Today I'm going to give it to you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you this morning, but if you've been listening, I know he has because we've been studying his word together. So all I can ask of any of you or of me, is that we obey what he shows us to do. And I would have to say, there may be someone, you're here, as best you know how, there's not unconfessed sin, you're living for him, you're, 100% of your life is his, then praise Jesus. I'm not trying to condemn you or trick you or anything else. That may describe you. Wonderful. Take a minute and thank him for his grace and mercy in your life. But if you can't say that, would you please make today the day that you're putting your all on the altar for the first time or doing that again? That you present your body a living sacrifice because that's your reasonable service. That's what makes sense in light of what he's done for you. or maybe you've never come to him at all. Would you be willing to put your faith in him today? Maybe you have questions. I'd be glad to talk with you afterward, pray with you after. There are others who would be willing to do that as well. Father, continue to work the seed of your word into our hearts, and I pray that there would be a great harvest because you've prepared the soil of our hearts and that we've received your implanted word and that has borne fruit. Lord, you expect fruit. We desire to have something to offer, something to return to you. May we obey you. May we submit to you. May we acknowledge you as Lord and follow you as your disciple. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.